This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Amber had always wanted to be a teacher and was able to fulfill that dream. With her husband, two children, and another one on the way, she seemed to have it all. But all was not what it seemed in the life of Amber Gichela. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Dear Diary. The teacher's husband called 911. Why? Just a note before starting. Apple for the Teacher does not name perpetrators out of respect to the victims. Today's episode deals with domestic violence, which may not be suitable for everyone. As a teacher, sometimes people ask me how I decided to become a teacher. The parents of my students often say that they admire teachers like me so much and don't know how we managed to teach a class of up to 30 kids when they find it hard enough to manage their own two or three children. As a young girl, I guess I dreamed of becoming what many girls dream about, a ballerina, a vet, but my goal was to become an air hostess. But it was my parents who suggested that I become a teacher. I was the oldest in my family with two younger brothers, and my parents would tell me that I would behave like a teacher towards them when they were young. I would sit them down and read books to them, also give them spelling tests, And I would also ask what they were learning at school and then make tests for them to do at home and then mark them. So this is what prompted them to suggest that I become a teacher. Also, back in our home country of Croatia, teachers were much respected and they were thrilled that I was able to pursue this career. Having a teacher in the family was considered highly desirable. This episode today features a lady who also decided that she wanted to pursue a teaching career. And Amber Gichela managed to do just that. Here she describes her journey. She wrote the following in 2014. Why I am a teacher. My whole life, it seems being a teacher is what I wanted to do. I felt as if it were what God was calling me to do. I think it's mainly because I love being around people and love learning. When I started college, I remember saying to God, lead me to where you want me to go. That summer, after my freshman year of college, I went on a mission trip to Guatemala. Up until this point, I had only taken basic level Spanish classes. While I was in Guatemala, I was really frustrated that I was unable to fully communicate with the people as to why I had gone on this trip. I was frustrated that I couldn't tell the people about Jesus and all that he had done in my life. It was after this trip that I felt God nudging me into going into learning and teaching Spanish. After Grand Rapids Community College and going to Guatemala, God guided my steps to Calvin College. At Calvin, I went into secondary education and decided to major in Spanish with an English minor. I also had my study abroad experience in Spain, where I was able to learn more. After finishing at Calvin College, 
I received a job teaching Spanish full-time at the South Christian High School. I have currently been teaching there for four years. With a Spanish major and an English minor, I obviously have a love for language. I don't know where God will lead me from here, but I have complete faith in whatever that is. It was while Amber was working at a school teaching Spanish that her school principal introduced her to his son. The two dated, fell in love and eventually got married. Fast forward to 2020 and the couple had two children, a two-year-old and an eight-month-old baby. Amber was also eight months pregnant with their third child. Then, it was a morning in November at 3.30am when Amber's husband made a call to 911. The ambulance arrived, but there was nothing that they could do for Amber. She was pronounced dead at the scene. When interviewed by the police, Amber's husband described what had happened that morning. He said he usually slept with Amber in their bedroom, but it was too hot on that night, so he decided to sleep on the couch. Then he heard his eighth-month-old baby crying in the bedroom, which is where the crib was. He walked into the bedroom, and that's when he said he saw Amber on the bed with a sweatshirt wrapped around her neck and that she wasn't breathing. At this point, you may be thinking that this story doesn't make sense. How can someone strangle themselves? The police were also suspicious of the man's explanation, and this suspicion was confirmed after the autopsy report was released. Amber had died from manual strangulation and asphyxiation, with wording in the report also stating death by homicide. Despite the story he had given, the police were convinced that he had deliberately murdered his wife. It was established that he had been the only person in the house, however, he maintained that he did not kill his wife. The police then set about interviewing Amber's family and friends and also her husband's family, and it was the man's own father, the school principal who had introduced Amber to her son, who made a startling comment when speaking to the police. He said he was 98% sure that his son had killed Amber. What a remarkable statement. How could he have been so sure? 
Quite often in true crime cases, the families and friends of perpetrators often say they didn't see the crime coming, that it was out of character for the person that they knew and that they were completely shocked. However, in this case, the man's own father was adamant he was guilty. The police were able to find out more about the man's background. It was revealed that as a child, he had threatened to burn the family house down and to kill family pets. He had also been on medication for mental health issues that he had developed after suffering concussion, and this made him prone to outbursts. So perhaps this is why his father was so sure. On the night before her death, Amber had FaceTimed her sister, and according to her, everything seemed fine. She had no idea that would be the last time her family would see her alive. After hearing the explanation he had given about that night, Amber's sister was also suspicious of his account. She had often stayed over at Amber's house to help with the two children, so she had an insight into the family. She revealed that he usually slept downstairs when the couple argued and that he wouldn't have woken to the sound of his baby crying due to the medication he was taking. She also said he never attended to the children, which was wholly Amber's role. Her sister was also concerned about another part of the autopsy report, which stated that Amber had abrasions on her face. When they had FaceTimed each other the night before, she had not seen any abrasions on Amber's face, so this pointed to her receiving the abrasions after the call, and as already seen, her husband made the 911 call the next morning at 3.30. At the time of her death, Amber had only been three days away from her birthday, and her sister had asked her what she wanted for her birthday, to which she replied, a new husband and she understood this reference, as she knew Amber wasn't happy with her husband's lack of support in the home. All household duties were left to her, and he was rarely forthcoming when she asked him to help. However, her sister had no idea how poignant those three words were to become a new husband. So now we have both families shedding light on her husband's character and behaviour, and the autopsy revealed a homicide had taken place. Everyone was convinced he had killed her, but there wasn't enough strong evidence to arrest him. That was until the police were granted a warrant to search the couple's home. As well as searching inside the house, they also searched the couple's vehicles and they were to make a very curious find in the centre console of Amber's car. They found six pieces of crumpled paper that looked like they had been torn out of a notebook. There was also something written on each piece. However, due to water stains, some of the ink had been smudged, so it wasn't possible to completely read the contents of the notes. However, they were able to decipher enough to determine that they were Amber's diary entries where she painted a picture of what her life with her husband had been like. Listen here to the words she wrote. I can't talk to him about anything. He controls every conversation we have. If I bring something up, he always says later. 
If I push, he starts to yell at me, very loudly, because he knows that I shut down. In the past, that shut me down because our dog would cower behind me. He isn't someone I want around my children. He has beaten me, kicked me, threw a mug at the big screen TV, smashed my cell phone, punched the glass door, broke four doors, smashed the counter with a hammer, punched holes in the walls. He has no initiative. He doesn't do anything without being asked. In the morning, he wakes up, takes meds, puts on clothes, pours cereal, doesn't even talk. After work, walks in, says hi, takes shower, eats, watches TV, no conversation, repeat. He has never made us a meal, done laundry, turned on a vacuum, dusted or cleaned, picked up dishes, toys, never bought gifts, gone to grocery store or paid bills. This makes me feel unsupported and downright abused. I clean and I do it all and he won't even pick up after himself. If I ask him for help, I get an attitude. I truly believe he wants me to do everything. When we run out of milk, he gets angry. We go north with the family. He doesn't pack one thing. Everyone gets up to make food, but he sleeps. He doesn't say thank you. He doesn't offer to clean up. My siblings think he is useless. His family wonder why he hasn't been kicked out of his family. But this last sentence that she wrote is the most chilling of all. I have literally thought to myself, am I safe being asleep next to him? Would he ever kill me? The discovery of these notes sent a shockwave through Amber's family. They had no idea of the extent of the abuse that she was being put through. The police now had crucial evidence to arrest Amber's husband and his lies finally came out into the open when he confessed to killing his wife. So the 911 call that you heard was totally fake. When asked why he strangled her, he just said he'd been angry with her for taking so long to lock up the house before bed. That was it. That was the motive for killing the mother of his two young children and also killing their unborn child. When the case finally went to court, more details came to light about the man's behaviour in the marriage. He also watched porn constantly, which had been a huge contention in their marriage. The court also heard how he was violent as a child and teen and that his family were afraid of him. The man ultimately pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and intentionally assaulting a pregnant person. As he stood before the judge, he was asked the following, Did you strangle your wife and kill her? To which he replied, while sobbing, Yes, Your Honour. And that was intentional, is that correct? Yes, Your Honour. And you knew she was pregnant at the time, is that correct? I did, Your Honour. I watched this video and it totally appalled me the way he was sobbing uncontrollably. It's too late for tears, you're crying for yourself, but not for her. The man was then given an opportunity to speak, and he said, I search for words. For 18 months I have thought about how to express my sorrow, the remorse, the regret. I have been unable to. My wife was a wonderful human being, a wonderful mother, daughter, and granddaughter. I'm here to accept responsibility for what I did. 
and here is audio of the judge's response. There's just no excuse or justification for this brutal and senseless murder. Uh, there's none whatsoever. I believe, sir, that you are a danger to society, a danger to the people in this county, in this state. Um, I don't believe you should ever be free, quite frankly. The judge then handed down the sentence of 33 years in prison after which he could apply for parole. Everyone then exited the court and Amber's mother put her arms around the man's father, the school principal, and here is that exchange. I am sorry, George, and I don't know why that happened. It's so senseless. No. Yeah. No. I'm sorry for your loss, really. If you couldn't quite hear, she said to him, I'm sorry, George, I don't know how that happened. It's so senseless. He then replied, I can't imagine it. How did that happen? And she replied, I'm sorry for your loss. My goodness, what an amazing woman, right? When interviewed outside the court, she said, We love her and we miss her and it's a void, but our God is faithful. His will will be done and it's in his hands. And we're sorry for both families because we did love our son-in-law. The man's father was also interviewed and said, We're all just broken by this. We're just broken. We just can't begin to think how this could have happened. And we all just live in God's grace. That's all we can live in. We have to live in God's grace. And here Amber's mother tries to make sense of what had happened. For some reason, she chose to stay in a situation that obviously cost her her life. The mystery of why does someone choose to stay when it could cost them their life? The fact that she would go to the extent of writing those notes and that she was trying to deal with it all on her own and shouldering all of that on her own shoulders is such a heartbreak for us, for her dad, for me, for her brother and sister, for her friends. Sadness and just so many unknowns and just the devastation of what domestic violence can lead to. And of course, the staff and students from the schools where she had taught were also in mourning. Here are some of their recollections about Amber. Amber was my Spanish teacher through most of high school. She had a connection with her students that most teachers don't. I will forever be grateful for the knowledge, guidance, laughter and grace that were found in her classroom. Rest in peace, I'm sorry you were taken from this earth so soon. Another student said, There's lots of good teachers out there, but only some can go above and beyond. I had Amber as my sophomore Spanish teacher, and interacting with her was more than a student-teacher relationship. It felt like one of friends. She was someone I could banter or joke with without fear, which made her class feel so relaxing. Her death is truly a great loss from this earth, and I pray she's living a much better life in heaven. Amber's case became yet another story of a woman who fell victim to domestic violence. The details of her case were discussed by a domestic violence association in the U.S., and here is what they had to say about her story. What we see here is a man who feels completely entitled 
to live life the way he wants it. If Amber did anything that wasn't the way he wanted it to be, he felt that gave him the right to hurt her, to hurt her things, or rage at her. His abuse, in his mind, was her fault, as many abusers say, because he felt entitled to life exactly on his terms. This is one of the things that porn repeatedly teaches people to, and why it's so destructive the longer you've been using it. Porn teaches the user that you deserve to get gratification any way you want it, and that others exist only to gratify you. Porn breeds and feeds narcissism, though not all porn users will have this effect. Many definitely will, and in marriages with this kind of violence, or in sex crimes, porn pretty much always plays a role today. So though it doesn't hurt everyone, those who end up hurting others almost always have a link to porn. Here's what I want people to see. That entitlement did not only show up in physical abuse. It showed up in how he treated his children. They were entirely her responsibility and their legitimate needs were an affront to him. It showed up in how he expected the household to be run. He should not be expected to do any work for himself. Other people exist to serve him. We need to recognise that this entitlement is the root of abuse. No, not every man who never changes a diaper will hit his wife. But pretty much all men who are abusive like that are terrible parents and feel entitled to having his wife serve him. No, not every man who never does housework will choke his wife. But pretty much every man who chokes his wife will also refuse to do housework. We need to recognise that entitled behaviour in any one area is a red flag and means that the man should be shunned because he is not safe. These things are often evident even in a dating relationship. If he is entitled, he is not a good marriage partner. So in cases such as Amber's, the question is often asked, why didn't she just leave? Here is the story of one woman who had experienced domestic violence, who answers this question when telling her own story. Her name is Leslie Morgan Steiner. I'm here today to talk about a disturbing question, which has an equally disturbing answer. My topic is the secrets of domestic violence. And the question I'm going to tackle is the one question everyone always asks. Why does she stay? Why would anyone stay with a man who beats her? I'm not a psychiatrist, a social worker, or an expert in domestic violence. I'm just one woman with a story to tell. I was 22. I had just graduated from Harvard College. I'd moved to New York City for my first job as a writer and editor at Seventeen Magazine. I had my first apartment, my first little green American Express card, and I had a very big secret. My secret was that I had this gun loaded with hollow point bullets pointed at my head by the man who I thought was my soulmate many, many times. The man who I loved more than anybody on earth held a gun to my head and threatened to kill me more times than I can even remember. I'm here to tell you the story of crazy love 
a psychological trap disguised as love, one that millions of women and even a few men fall into every year. It may even be your story. I don't look like a typical domestic violence survivor. I have a BA in English from Harvard College, an MBA in marketing from Wharton Business School. I spent most of my career working for Fortune 500 companies, including Johnson & Johnson, Leo Burnett, and The Washington Post. I've been married for almost 20 years to my second husband, and we have three kids together. So my first message for you is that domestic violence happens to everyone. All races, all religions, all income and education levels. It's everywhere. And my second message is that everyone thinks domestic violence happens to women, that it's a women's issue. Not exactly. Over 85% of abusers are men. And domestic abuse happens only in intimate, interdependent, long-term relationships. In other words, in families. The last place we would want or expect to find violence which is one reason domestic abuse is so confusing. I would have told you myself that I was the last person on earth who would stay with a man who beats me. But in fact, I was a very typical victim because of my age. I was 22. And in the United States, women ages 16 to 24 are three times as likely to be domestic violence victims as women of other ages. I was also a very typical victim because I knew nothing about domestic violence, its warning signs or its patterns. I met Connor on a cold, rainy January night. He sat next to me on the New York City subway, and he started chatting me up. He told me two things. One was that he, too, had just graduated from an Ivy League school, and that he worked at a very impressive Wall Street bank. But what made the biggest impression on me that first meeting was that he was smart and funny. And he looked like a farm boy. He had these big cheeks, these big apple cheeks, and this wheat blonde hair, and he seemed so sweet. One of the smartest things Connor did from the very beginning was to create the illusion that I was the dominant partner in the relationship. He did this, especially at the beginning, by idolizing me. We started dating, and he loved everything about me, that I was smart, that I'd gone to Harvard, that I was passionate about helping teenage girls and my job. He wanted to know everything about my family and my childhood, my hopes and dreams. Connor believed in me as a writer and a woman in a way that no one else ever had. And he also created a magical atmosphere of trust between us by confessing his secret, which was that as a very young boy, starting at age four, he had been savagely and repeatedly physically abused by his stepfather. And the abuse had gotten so bad that he had had to drop out of school in eighth grade, even though he was very smart. And he'd spent almost 20 years rebuilding his life, which is why that Ivy League degree and the Wall Street job and his bright, shiny future meant so much to him. If you had told me that this smart, funny, sensitive man who adored me would one day dictate whether or not I wore makeup, how short my skirts were, where I lived, what jobs I took, who my friends were, and where I spent Christmas, I would have laughed at you. Because there was not a hint of violence or control or anger in Connor at the beginning. I didn't know 
that the first stage in any domestic violence relationship is to seduce and charm the victim. I also didn't know that the second step is to isolate the victim. Now, Connor did not come home one day and announce, you know, hey, this, all this Romeo and Juliet stuff has been great, but I need to move into the next phase where I isolate you and I abuse you. <laughs> so I need to get you out of this apartment where the neighbors can hear you scream and out of this city where you have friends and family and coworkers who can see the bruises. Instead, Connor came home one Friday evening and he told me that he had quit his job that day, his dream job. And he said that he had quit his job because of me, because I had made him feel so safe and loved that he didn't need to prove himself on Wall Street anymore. And he just wanted to get out of the city and away from his abusive, dysfunctional family and move to a tiny town in New England where he could start his life over with me by his side. Now, the last thing I wanted to do was leave New York and my, my dream job. But I thought you made sacrifices for your soulmate. So I agreed, and I quit my job, and Connor and I left Manhattan together. I had no idea I was falling into crazy love, that I was walking headfirst into a carefully laid physical, financial, and psychological trap. The next step in the domestic violence pattern is to introduce the threat of violence and see how she reacts. And here's where those guns come in. As soon as we moved to New England, you know that place where Connor was supposed to feel so safe? He bought three guns. He kept one in the glove compartment of our car. He kept one under the pillows on our bed and the third one he kept in his pocket at all times. And he said that he needed those guns because of the trauma he'd experienced as a young boy. He needed them to feel protected. But those guns were really a message for me. And even though he hadn't raised a hand to me, my life was already in grave danger every minute of every day. Connor first physically attacked me five days before our wedding. It was 7 a.m. I still had on my nightgown. I was working on my computer trying to finish a freelance writing assignment, and I got frustrated. And Connor used my anger as an excuse to put both of his hands around my neck and to squeeze so tightly that I could not breathe or scream. And he used the chokehold to hit my head repeatedly against the wall. Five days later, the 10 bruises on my neck had just faded and I put on my mother's wedding dress, and I married him. Despite what had happened, I was sure we were gonna live happily ever after. Because I loved him, and he loved me so much. And he was very, very sorry. He had just been really stressed out by the wedding and by becoming a family with me. It was an isolated incident, and he was never gonna hurt me again. It happened twice more on the honeymoon. The first time, I was driving to find a secret beach, and I got lost. And he punched me in the side of my head so hard that the other side of my head repeatedly hit the driver's side window. And then a few days later, driving home from our honeymoon, he got frustrated by traffic, and he threw a cold Big Mac in my face. Connor proceeded to beat me once or twice a week for the next two and a half years of our marriage. Back to my question. 
Why did I stay? The answer is easy. I didn't know he was abusing me. Even though he held those loaded guns to my head, pushed me downstairs, threatened to kill our dog, pulled the key out of the car ignition as I drove down the highway, poured coffee grinds on my head as I dressed for a job interview. I never once thought of myself as a battered wife. Instead, I was a very strong woman in love with a deeply troubled man, and I was the only person on earth who could help Connor face his demons. The other question everybody asks is, why doesn't she just leave? Why didn't I walk out? I could have left any time. To me, this is the saddest and most painful question that people ask. Because we victims know something you usually don't. It's incredibly dangerous to leave an abuser. Because the final step in the domestic violence pattern is kill her. Over 70% of domestic violence murders happen after the victim has ended the relationship, after she's gotten out, because then the abuser has nothing left to lose. Other outcomes include long-term stalking, even after the abuser remarries, denial of financial resources, and manipulation of the family court system to terrify the victim and her children, who are regularly forced by family court judges to spend unsupervised time with the man who beat their mother. And still we ask, why doesn't she just leave? I was able to leave because of one final sadistic beating that broke through my denial. I realized that the man who I loved so much was going to kill me if I let him. So I broke the silence. I told everyone, the police, my neighbors, my friends and family, total strangers. And I'm here today because you all helped me. We tend to stereotype victims as grisly headlines, self-destructive women, damaged goods. The question, why does she stay, is code for some people for it's her fault for staying. As if victims intentionally choose to fall in love with men intent upon destroying us. Because it turns out that I'm actually a very typical domestic violence victim and a typical domestic violence survivor. I remarried a kind and gentle man. We have those three kids. What I will never have again, ever, is a loaded gun held to my head by someone who says that he loves me. Now right now, maybe you're thinking, wow, this is fascinating. Or wow, how stupid was she? But this whole time, I've actually been talking about you. I promise you, there are several people listening to me right now who are currently being abused, or who were abused as children, or who are abusers themselves. Abuse could be affecting your daughter, your sister, your best friend right now. I was able to end my own crazy love story by breaking the silence. I'm still breaking the silence today. It's my way of helping other victims. And it's my final request of you. Talk about what you heard here. Abuse thrives only in silence. 
You have the power to end domestic violence simply by shining a spotlight on it. We victims need everyone. We need every one of you to understand the secrets of domestic violence. Show abuse the light of day by talking about it with your children, your coworkers, your friends and family. Recast survivors as wonderful, lovable people with full futures. Recognize the early signs of violence and conscientiously intervene, de-escalate it, show victims a safe way out. Together, we can make our beds, our dinner tables, and our families the safe and peaceful oases they should be. Thank you. So after hearing Amber and Leslie's story, you may recognise someone you know who is in the same situation, or it might even be you. I decided to cover this story to do my part to raise awareness about domestic violence. I'm not a therapist. I'm not here to tell women to leave their partners. Every person's situation is unique. So all I ask is that after listening to this episode, that you make your own decision about what course of action that you may wish to take. As we often hear on podcasts, phone numbers are provided for people in crisis to access, and I also wanted to provide these phone numbers. However, when looking for hotline services, there were just so many, especially in the larger countries like the US and Canada. So rather than trying to list numbers, I think the best advice that I can give is for you or someone else to call your home country emergency number who can provide you with a crisis line to call. And in this episode, I will leave you with this quote. A domestic violence victim can't even start a plan to leave until they first believe that life outside of that relationship is better and possible. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.